Father, as a church, we ask that you would search our hearts this morning, that you would try us and that you would know our thoughts. We ask, Lord, that you would see if there is any grievous way in any of us, and then by your grace lead us in the way of everlasting. We come before you, Father, this morning, desiring to get a glimpse of your holiness. It is sufficient in Christ to compel us to live a holy life. It is hard for us, Father, in this day and age to Remember moment by moment that you are the same God then as you are now. And as you descended upon Mount Sinai to reveal your majesty and your power and your holiness to the Israelites, we ask that you would do that today through the proclamation of your word. We ask that you would, by your spirit, Help us to see you as you truly are. I am unable, Father, as a sinful man, to communicate your holiness to your people, but you can. You can take the words here in Exodus 19, and by your Spirit, you can apply it to the hearts and minds of the beloved you've gathered here, that we might be transformed by your holiness. And so I come as a beggar asking you to do that. We want a right response to this passage, Lord. We don't want to be religious hearers. Maybe for some hearing it a tenth, a fifteenth time, and then leaving unchanged. Instead, Father, cause us to hear it anew, that we are forever changed by the holiness and by your grace. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You can't study a passage like Exodus 19 and not feel holy inept to preach. I'm not saying I didn't prepare a sermon for you, saints. I did. I spent a lot of time on it. But the more you dwell in the holiness of God, the more you convicted are of your own sin, and the more you realize that a teaching like this, apart from the Spirit of God and you listening by the Spirit, it's almost not possible to preach. I I want to do the best I can as a sinful man to bring you into the presence of a thrice holy God. And if that happens today in the context of the gospel, then we will hear properly this passage and God will be honored in the transforming of our hearts. If you were here last week, then you know where we are in the story. The Israelites have arrived at Mount Sinai. And so they've set up camp in the Sinai wilderness. They're three months removed from Egypt in the Exodus And Moses was called up by God, summoned up by God, to come and hear the covenant. So Moses goes up, receives the covenant from God, and he comes back down to the people and he says, Listen, this creator of the universe wants to enter into a relationship with us. He wants us to be to him his treasured possession. He wants us to obey his voice and to keep the covenant. He wants us to display his glory by being a kingdom of priests and a holy nations to all the other nations throughout the earth. God gave Moses instructions, if you remember from last week. He told the people that God's coming in three days. We have two days to prepare. That's not a long time for the creator of the universe to come into their midst. Most of you spend more time cleaning your house when you have company. Moses said, you got to wash your clothes, you got to 
exercise personal purity, but most of all, Moses had to consecrate them with blood. And then in order that during that two-day period no one died, God told Moses, you got to set up a perimeter around the mountain. We don't want people breaking through. If they come near the mountain, they're going to die. Look at verse 12. He told Moses, set limits for the people around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. So the people had prepared themselves the best they could to meet the creator of the universe on the third day. But I would argue in all their preparation, not a single soul in that camp, including Moses, was ready to see and hear and feel what they were about to experience. No one. What the Israelites saw that day was history-making. Black and ominous clouds, lightning, fire, belching smoke, rising to the heavens. What they heard that day, blasts and booms of thunder and the incessant blowing of a trumpet that got louder and louder as God approached. And what they felt that day, the intensity of the fire from the mountain, the earth moving beneath their feet. This encounter with Yahweh on Mount Sinai was unquestionably one of the most significant theophanies, God appearing to man in all of human history. Terrifying, awe-inspiring, power and glory revealing to all mankind that this transcendent God, the completely separate, all other God, has made himself imminent and known to mankind. So the only question for the Israelites and the only question for mankind throughout human history and the only real question for you today is how are you going to meet him? How are you going to meet the creator of the universe? In what manner will God reveal himself to you? And in what manner will you be revealed to God? I still have friends who do not believe that God is real. I have other friends who think that he's some type of a strange, new age, mystical force that roams about the universe. Others, this old man in the sky with a long beard. What is your view of God? Is your view of God accurate? Is your view biblical? Does it even matter? The culture will tell you it does not. The culture will say it doesn't matter what you believe, in God, not in God. But the Bible teaches that your view of the Creator will not only shape how you live now, but it will determine how you come into His presence. And how we, my beloved, come into His presence will determine how we spend all of eternity. This morning, I would like to ask and answer a few of these questions, if we can, from the text. How will we meet God? What will God be to us when we meet Him? And I want to do that by looking at three things. Number one, the God of Mount Sinai. Number two, the God of the human heart. And number three, the God of Mount Zion. The God of Sinai, the God of the human heart, and the God of Mount Zion. Look at verse 16 with me. First point, the God of Mount Sinai. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and very loud trumpet blasts, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Verse 17, then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. God spoke. Next week, we're going to get to Exodus chapter 20, and we're going to hear 
God give the people the Ten Commandments. Now, the Ten Commandments is a summary of the entire law expressing the relationship that God wants to have with His people, this covenant relationship, His holiness to them and His expectation of them being a holy people in living to Him. And here at Mount Sinai, He wants them to see how serious He is about the giving of this law, that this was not to be taken lightly by the people or their children or their children's children. He wants them to receive the law with all the weight and all the power of the lawgiver himself. If you were to get a flyer on your car in your neighborhood reminding you to bring your garbage cans in the day after the garbage has been picked up, because that is the local ordinance, you may or you may not take that all that seriously. A flyer doesn't really exude a great deal of power. If the President of the United States came to your door and he said, you better pay your taxes this year, there'd be power behind the statement because the one who enforces the law is telling you to abide by it. In other words, one of the primary purposes of this theophany is that his people might hear, receive, and obey the law of God because this lawgiver is giving it. In fact, every natural phenomenon expressed on the top of Mount Sinai, as supernatural as it was, was intended to reveal something about this lawgiver. Now, the the Israelites were not unaware of who God was at that point in time. He had already miraculously led them out of Egypt, you know that. He had already sustained them and led them in the desert three months now as a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. But nothing Absolutely nothing prepared them for this moment on that third day when God descended. The thunder, the lightning, the shaking of the earth. You think the earth moves here. You think Loma Prieta was something. The shaking of the earth all revealing His power as the creator of the universe. Unquestionably so. The thick clouds and the smoke revealing or maybe concealing, better word, His mysterious, transcendent, that which would remain hidden to man because he is holy, he is completely other. His descending in fire, fire is always in the scriptures, or not always, but more often than not, is referred to as a means of purification. God is holy, and he will purify his people and the world of sin. And the sound of the trumpet growing louder and louder. Why that? Why a trumpet? Well, trumpets would sound when royalty would arrive. And that that trumpet being sounded from the mountain to let us know that the real king, the king of the universe was coming and to make ourselves ready. Magnificent? Awful? Incredible? Awe-inspiring? What adjective could you possibly put to describe God descending on Mount Sinai? Whatever one we do, it falls woefully short. There's good news and somewhat dreadful news, my friends, that God has not changed. The God that you worship, the Father, through Jesus Christ, is the same God who descended on Mount Sinai. Centuries after Moses, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 6 is ushered into the throne room of God. Do you know what he sees? Listen to his description. I saw the Lord seated on a throne, so he is the king, high and exalted. And the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood seraphim, calling out to one another, what were they saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and all the earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorpost and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Sound familiar? Isaiah got a Mount Sinai moment with the living God. Why? Because that's who he is. You say, well, certainly that's not the same understanding of God in the New Testament. The Apostle John, writing most likely in 90 AD, at the very end of the compilation of the New Testament canon, in the book of Revelation, he's also ushered up, much like Isaiah, into the presence of God. Listen to his description. At once I was in the Spirit and I saw a throne standing in heaven with someone seated on it. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbling and peals of thunder. 
Mount Sinai again. And according to the Bible, when Jesus returns, when he comes for the church on that final day, when he comes to judge the living and the dead, the audible and visible signs of glory that the Israelites saw at Mount Sinai will be on display for the entire world. He will come with fire and earthquakes, 2 Peter 3.10. He will come with dark clouds and the sound of trumpets, Matthew 24. He will come according to Revelation 6, a great earthquake. The sun will be blackened as sackcloth and the moon like blood. And all the world will respond as the Israelites did at Sinai. Revelation 6.15, they will hide themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. God hasn't changed, my beloved. So if you're, if you're bummed that your moment in history was not with the Israelites at Mount Sinai because you would have loved to have seen that. He said, oh, that, I missed out on that. The great news, there's going to be an encore performance. Infinitely more grand than Mount Sinai and for the entire world to see. But I must warn you, if you are eager to see this and experience this, you and I and all mankind will respond very much like the Israelites. Look at the latter part of verse 16. It said, all the people in the camp trembled. And that's Tremble falls weak of the Hebrew, terrified, scared to death almost. Verse 17, and Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. 2.5 million people, trembling, shaking, nearly scared to death, standing before the living God. This is the universal response when we even get a glimpse of God's glory. Mount Sinai was a glimpse, my beloved. Had God displayed his glory, all his glory for his people, as he said to Moses, they all would have perished. This is a glimpse. And yet they're all terrified. They're petrified. That is the response, though. The response of Isaiah when he entered the throne room, he said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's the right response. Whatever idea we have of coming into the presence of the creator of the universe and, ha- and giving him a high five or just being casual about it is false and unbiblical. You remember what happened with Job after he saw God in the whirlwind and God spoke for two chapters? Job said in chapter 42, I had heard of you. <laughs> I have heard of you by hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore what? I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. Now, Job was favored by God. God said of Job, no more righteous man on earth than he. And yet he responds by despising himself and repenting in dust and ashes. I don't need to tell you we live in a time when most of our ideas, even in the church, about God fall woefully short of His holiness, His majesty, and His power. Even in the church, my beloved, every single one of us, without exception, has a fractured, insufficient view of God's holiness and grandeur. Every one of us. If I could somehow, this morning, instead of you hearing me preach, if I had the power to teleport through time, I would. I'd I'd grab all of us, and we go back 3,500 years And we would join the 2.5 million Israelites and we would stand before the mountain of the Lord. And we would see his glory, his power, his majesty, his holiness, his sovereignty. And we too, you too, would tremble. Even Moses trembled. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 21, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. This is Moses, a friend of God. This is Moses going back to the burning bush. He knows God personally, and yet Moses trembles. Why? Because God is holy. No one like our Lord. I think of how it might reshape our understanding as a people if we could go back 
and see him like this. If we could see his infinite power, wouldn't we all agree that it's so pathetic for us as weak, sinful creatures to vie for power, to fight for power? Wouldn't it be just a pathetic display in our lives? And wouldn't we be afraid to rebel against one so powerful, seeing him like that? And wouldn't his majesty crush our pride? If we saw God in all of his holiness magnified on that mountain, wouldn't our pride be destroyed? I mean, could we gaze upon that majestic sight and have an ounce of arrogance running through our veins? I don't think we could. And wouldn't his holiness compel us like Isaiah and Job to fall down and cry out for mercy? Wouldn't it? And wouldn't his sovereignty as the king of kings compel us to want to serve him? Say, I I want to serve, I want to bow down, I want to worship this glorious king. I believe it would. I believe all those would happen. But I also believe that it would not last. I believe that we could see God upon that mountain, and as soon as we were teleported back here, I mean, we'd have an incredible worship service that day. You would sing like you've never sung. You'd listen like you've never listened. But then a week would pass, and then a month, and suddenly the old man would come right back in. Our pride-filled, power-hungry, sinful, self-exalting lives would begin to take over again. So how do you know that? Look at the passage with me again. Point number two, I pray you're still with me. The God of the human heart. Look at the latter part of verse uh, 19. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down. (laughs) Moses was probably a little bit tired. Come up, go down. Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Verse 22, and Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. Now, no one quite knows who these priests are, right? The Levitical priesthood in the line of Aaron had yet to be established. That comes later. Most commentators, and I think I would agree, these are the firstborn males that were redeemed by God in Egypt. I mean, Moses needed help sacrificing the animals and sprinkling the people with blood. And it was likely this firstborn males. Whoever they were, the passage is clear, no one, not even the priests, had special privilege to come before God. He had created a barrier that they needed to listen to or they would die. And so the Lord calls Moses back up to go back down. Verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. What was God's concern? What was God's concern? It would be their temptation to disobey this very clear warning, this very clear word, that if they disobeyed, they would die, and God didn't want them to die. That's a good thing. God understood that the manifestation of His holiness on that mountain and the giving of the word no matter how terrifying and powerful it all was, was insufficient to change the nature of their hearts. Now think about that. God appears in majestic, transcendent, holy power. God speaks through Moses and gives them clear instruction, and yet neither of those are sufficient to change the human heart. He knows that even though he said, break through and you're going to die, that some would. I mean, some are going to look and they're going to say, well, Moses is going up and down and he's not dying. So why can't we go? Why can't we get behind the cloud and see him? Right, he said very clearly, lest they want to come and look. They want to peer in. They want to see this transcendent God. They didn't listen. They weren't going to listen. So he sends Moses back down toward them a third time. My father tells a story. I was too young to remember that when he was working on 
one of the ventilations, the ventilation screens on the foundation of the house. Evidently, he told me, he said, don't go near there, there's a beehive. So what did I do? According to the story, I went over and I stuck my head in the vent, and I got stung a few times. Now, you might be thinking, that boy's not that bright. And, and you would be partly right, but that's not the most accurate assessment. More accurately, you would be thinking, what a sinner. What a sinner. His father made clear instructions to him, don't go near the vent lest you get stung. And he goes near the vent and he sticks his head in. That's not just stupid. That's disobedient. That's rebellious. But that is our sin nature, is it not? I mean, that does not describe us well. The good that we want to do, we do not do. And the evil that which we do not want to do, we keep on doing it. So Paul cries out in Romans 7, as we do, or at least I do on a daily basis, oh, what a wretched man am I who will rescue me from this body of death. Having the law is not sufficient. Adam and Eve had the law. They had one law. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They had one law, and it was not sufficient. They knew better, but they wanted to look in too, didn't they? They wanted to get behind the cloud and behind the smoke. They wanted to get in, and they wanted to see God, and they wanted to be like God. And in their disobedience, they were cast out of his presence. They were put on the other side of the barrier. Outside of the garden, they died spiritually, they died physically, and we, as their children, inherited it all. Look at verse 23 again. Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to the mountains, to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us. So Moses is saying this to the Lord. The people cannot come up. For you yourself warned us, God, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. Now maybe Moses just doesn't want to go back down the mountain again. Maybe he says, I'm tired, Lord. Just say it yourself. I don't think so. I think that Moses completely misses the total depravity of the human heart. He said, you yourself warned us. And if you spoke, certainly we're not going to disobey that. Moses underestimated the power of the God, small g God, small g gods that live in the heart of every single son and daughter of Adam. You see, my beloved, as powerful and majestic and holy and sovereign as God revealed himself on Mount Sinai, as clear as the law and the word will be, the glimpses, the hearing, insufficient to change the human heart, unless that same God on Mount Sinai comes down and does something fantastic and miraculous, and that is change the heart of a man or woman. Unless he does that, there is a God who has more power over you, and that's the God of your own heart. Unless God takes your dead heart and makes it alive, you will submit to, you will follow, and you will die in the God of your own heart. And you know who that is, right? It's you. You say, no, it's, it's an idol. It may be an idol. We make the idols. The God of the human heart is self. You don't have to meditate long on that to agree with it. If you know Jesus Christ, you know the Romans 7 battle that Paul talked about. You know that that God in your heart, your own self, your own desires, that God still has some power. If not, none of us would ever sin. And most of us, I believe, just like Moses, we underestimate the power of this God that vies for our allegiance. I believe that many of us, because we miss the holiness of God on Mount Sinai, many professing Christians today, we, we attend church, we say our prayers periodically, and we read our Bibles now and then, we exercise nominal Christianity, and we think that's somehow sufficient to keep the God of our own hearts at bay. But you know, with some reflection, that that's a lie, that it does not work. Some of you may be in that situation right now. You profess Christ, you read your Bible, but you're not running after the Lord. And so the God of your heart reigns. How many times, my beloved, have you given in to that sin when you said, I will never do that again. 
and then you do it that night. How many husbands, husbands, how many of you said, I will never, ever, ever talk to my wife like that again? And then you do. Wives, how many times you said, I will never be in such a rebellious state against my husband who's my head, and then you do. Children, how many times you said, I will never disobey and speak back to my parents like that again, and then you do. Employees, how many times you said, I will never grumble again? How long does that last? God knows, listen, God knows that we need more than thunder, lightning, and earthquakes. God knows that we need more than the law to follow to be holy as he is holy. Do you know what the response was of the Israelites once they received the law in Exodus chapter 20? We're going to get to this, but let me just tell you, Exodus 20, they get the law from God. God speaks. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us, Moses, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. They want more space. They want to get further away from God, not closer. They were rightly afraid. God revealed all of his majesty and his holiness in such a way that they trembled. He gave them the Ten Commandments to keep the covenant, which they were hearing it thinking, can't do that, can't do that, can't do that. They knew they were going to break it. And so what do they do? They pull back. Because I would argue they understood their hearts far better than we do. They knew that apart from God doing something miraculous in their hearts, there's no way they could be holy enough to live in this covenant. Their own sinful depravity was revealed clearly by the law that would be given. And as they gazed upon this mountain with lightning and fire and smoke and clouds and shaking and trumpets and God speaking, as they gazed upon the holiness and then they heard the law, they knew we're in big trouble. We're in big trouble because we can't do this. And they realized their only hope was a mediator. So what do they do? They said, Moses, you go back up that mountain. They said, we need someone to intercede for us, as we saw last week. And so they send him back up. The Israelites, I would argue, my beloved, who had yet to receive the full gospel, the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I would argue the Israelites, more than us, more than most Western Christians today, understood the folly of religion. They got it. Religion says, be good, do what God says, go to church, Read your Bible, be nice to people, pray now and then, and you'll be saved. That's what religion teaches us. Religion says that God, God's holy, but he's not that holy. Religion says man's not perfect, but we're not that bad. When you take away from your understanding of the living God, the God of Mount Sinai, then the foolish God of your own heart will reign. You will begin to say to yourself, maybe I can be good enough. Maybe I can just obey God's laws. Maybe I one day will be righteous enough of my own work to look in, to peer in. That didn't work for Adam and Eve, and it didn't work for the Israelites. I don't think it's going to work for us either. It's a dead end. No one can save themselves. No one can do a work in their own lives making themselves ready to come into the presence of the thrice holy God. That's why Paul said, he made this imminently clear in Romans chapter 3, he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those of us who are under the law, listen to this, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. And then he said in verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified. No human being will be considered righteous or holy in the eyes of God. Since through the law comes what? The knowledge of sin. The law is good, and the law is wonderful, and we want to follow it. But when we see God's holiness on Mount Sinai, and they get the law, their right response is, we can't do this. It reveals all the sin and the complete darkness of the human heart. Are you with me still? Number one, the holiness of God on Mount Sinai. We've seen, number two, the sinful God of the human heart. I want to show you God manifesting himself in one more way, and we'll close. And that's the God of Mount Zion. The God of Mount Zion. 
My beloved, you do not want to you do not want to seek out the God of Mount Zion and come before him with all your works in your hand. You will perish. You do not want to follow the God of your own heart, listening to the commandments of the culture, thinking somehow this is the way I can come up that mountain. The culture tells you, here are your cliches. Be true to yourself. Be whatever you want to be. Don't let anyone tell you how to live. Love yourself. Follow your heart. Sound familiar? Last week on the television show, The Voice, a duet tried out. 21-year-old identical twins. Fascinating. The twist was that one of the two twins believed herself to be transgender. Standing next to her twin sister with her short hair, her male clothes, and her deep voice because of the hormone treatments... The message she said she wanted to communicate to the world was, be true to yourself. And she said that, ironically, even as she stood next to her carbon copy image of her true self, as God made her. Heartbreaking. Her parents, standing backstage, uttered the same remarks supporting their daughter's gender confusion by encouraging her to send this message to the world that you can and should be whatever you want to be, including whatever gender you want to be. Those are the commands of the world, my beloved. That's how the world speaks. That's what the world teaches. The commands of the God of our own hearts are deadly commands, and they have for millennia now ushered millions and millions of people into eternal damnation. You don't want to seek God at Mount Sinai with all your works trying to justify yourself. And you don't want to seek God at the judgment seat trying to bring the God of your own heart, your idols before him as though it is worthy. You want to make your way to Mount Zion. Where the same perfectly holy, triune God comes down just at at Mount Sinai in order to receive you in grace. Not by your own works, not by the God of your own heart, but in grace. So the question that we must ask is, how do you get to Zion? Right, that should be your question. If you're paying attention, that's where I want to go. I don't want to go to Mount Sinai. I don't want to follow my idols. Where is this place? 1,500 years after God descended on Mount Sinai, he descended on a little unknown town by the name of Bethlehem. Not in clouds, not in thunder, not in lightning, not in fire, not in earthquakes, but he came as a baby. A baby. The creator of the universe, Paul tells us in Philippians 2, emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, listen to this, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And on the cross, God the Father, listen, in all his power, in his majesty, in his sovereignty, poured out his holy wrath on his precious son. And just like at Mount Sinai, the Gospels tell us that as Christ hung upon the cross, the sky grew dark, the earth shook, and people were afraid. As the Son of God carried our sins on His flesh-torn back, ascending the cross of Mount Sinai so that we could live. See, something happened on the cross other than just our Lord's physical suffering. On the cross, Jesus entered into, he went into the thunder, he went into the lightning, he went into the thick smoke of God's holiness. He breathed in the judgment of that smoke that rose up like a kiln into the heavens, into his perfect, beautiful, sinless lungs. He felt the purifying fire of God's wrath in his pierced hands and pierced feet. And just as Moses had warned the people at Mount Sinai, if you draw near, you will perish. So did Christ perish. Jesus drew near to God and he died, not because he was sinful, but because he carried our sins on his back all the way in. 
Verse 24, Christ, our high priest, broke through to come up to the Lord. He broke into the holiest of holies, but he wasn't there by himself. He brought all of our sins, and so this holy God, as it continues to say, had to break out against him, and he did. All the wrath, all the justice, all the lightning and thunder and smoke and quaking of the earth that we rightly deserve for our sins, he poured out on his son on the cross. Hebrews 9, 12, Jesus entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining our eternal redemption. Something else happened, though. When Jesus ascended the Mount Sinai on the cross in our place, he not only redeemed us, from the consequences of our sins, that is an eternity in hell. He not only bought us back from that, but he did something else. That if you miss this, you miss a piece of the gospel. And oh, I hope you hear it today. He broke down the barrier. He broke down the barrier. Moses went up the mountain, and that barrier was in place. Christ ascended that mountain, and that barrier was torn in two. Matthew chapter 27. Christ on the cross. Now listen. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. The work was completed. And then we're told, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. Sinai again. But this time, the barrier was destroyed. This time, through the sacrifice of Christ, Jesus made a way for sinners like you and me by grace through faith in him, to go up the mountain. We could cross the barrier. We could go behind the thick clouds and into the lightning, into the fire, and not be destroyed. Oh, my goodness, this is a piece of the gospel that is so glorious. If this does not stir your heart, I don't know what will. I really don't. This is awe-inspiring, earth-shattering, heart-moving, that we could ascend the mountain and enter into a love-covenant relationship with this Father. You see, Mount Sinai, it prefigured the temple. Mount Sinai, God descended upon the mountain. Moses was the high priest entering into the cloud and into the holiest of holies. The temple of God, first the tabernacle, and then the temple for centuries, had the inner sanctum, the holiest of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God would descend upon that Ark. One day, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, when the priest could come in after ritual purification, to engage and see this holy God. Moses was that first mediator, acting as the high priest for the people, going behind the curtain so that the people would not be destroyed. For centuries, the high priest would enter into the holiest of holies on Yom Kippur and intercede on behalf of the nation. And then Jesus Christ, the perfect high priest, entered into the holiest of holies on the cross, going behind the clouds, into the smoke, into the lightning, into the fire, so that unlike Moses, he could completely tear the barrier down and grant those through faith into the presence of the throne room of God. The veil of the temple when Jesus breathed his last breath, was torn from top to bottom so that Jew and Gentile, by grace through faith, could go in, into God's presence, into his holiness, so that sinners like us, who sin thousands and thousands of times a day, could enter into the presence of God, not by our own works, but by the works of Christ. Not by hoping and coming to Sinai with whatever pathetic offering we have, but trusting in Christ. Not coming before the judgment seat with your idols, but trusting in Christ. We're told in Titus chapter 3 that when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, that's Jesus coming down to earth. Listen to this. God saved us, not because of works done by us, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You know how you get to Zion you got to go through the cross. The only way to Zion is going through Calvary, through the broken body and spilled blood of Jesus that has the power to renew our hearts, not just forgive our sins, but to give us the new heart that we need. 
right? The thunder and lightning and shaking, it's not enough. The law is not enough. You need, I need new hearts. And Christ does that throughout the cross. Mount Zion's where you want to go. Not Sinai and not the judgment seat with your own gods. You want to go to Zion. I know that I don't ask you to do this, but if you would, turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, the New Testament is so good that it gives us a clear picture. It delineates the difference between the two, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. In fact, I would argue that if you're going to read Exodus, always read Hebrews as a companion book. They go well together. Look at verse 18, Hebrews chapter 12. The author of Hebrews is now speaking to all those who have been born again, who have been made alive in Christ. Listen to these glorious words. If you know Christ, this is you. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, speaking of Mount Sinai, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Verse 20. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Verse 21, indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Christian, if you have repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ, then this mountain is not your mountain. You don't go to Mount Sinai. You can't go to Mount Sinai. The terrors of the law and your inability to fulfill it have been replaced by the saving work, the perfect life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Keep reading with me. Look at verse 22. Here's your mountain, saints. You have come, past tense. You have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalems, and to the innumerable angels in festival gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The author of Hebrews could not paint a picture making the distinction between the law and the gospel more clearly than this. Sinai is dark and gloomy. Zion is a city of bright and shining joy. Mount Sion is filled with fear and danger. Zion is a place of safety and peace. Mount Zion blazes with fire and smoke and trumpets blasting in Zion. You come to Zion and there's a welcoming party there. And they're there bringing you in, the angels and the saints who have gone before you. And they're bringing you into the presence of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit to enjoy His presence forever. Sinai keeps sinners at a distance. Zion draws sinners close by grace through faith that we might enter the throne room of God with joy and laughter and worship. So what should your response be to this great work of Christ? If Christ did on the cross, if he did go into the thunder and into the lightning and he was destroyed on your behalf and now you have not only his forgiveness but you have his righteousness, what is the right response to that? This is a whole nother sermon series but I'm going to give it to you in one minute, so listen. Hebrews chapter 10 gives us the answer, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, listen to this now. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, you can do that now because the blood covers you by the new and living way that he opened up through the curtain. The curtain's torn. The new and living way is the gospel. That is through his flesh. We are told, draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Run to God. Draw near to God. You now in Christ, if you are in Christ, you have access to God. You can worship God. You can sing to God. You can pray to God. You can gather like this on a Sunday and not be afraid of being put to death. Draw near to God in full assurance of your faith because God is faithful. Then he said in the next verse, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. I mean, stay the course. Don't hear a sermon about the holiness of God and run. 
Don't say, as they did to Moses, we need more distance. Hear this sermon and know in Christ that the blood covers you and you have full access. Come in with confidence. Not confidence in your work or your holiness, but confidence in the holiness of Christ. And then he says in verse 24, consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as some other habit are doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. He says, look around you, encourage each other. Encourage them to worship God. Encourage them to stay the course. All the more as you see the day drawing near. So I started this sermon with a question. I'm going to end it with the same question. When that day comes, friends, how will you meet God? When the day comes. The day is the day that Jesus returns. It is the day of the Lord. It is the day when Mount Sinai, for the entire world, will see the thunder and the lightning and the fire and the glory. All the world. How are you going to meet him? Will you come before Jesus as the Israelites did at Mount Sinai? Will you come with works in your hands and know that that will lead to death? Will you come before the judgment seat of God with all the idols? You said, Lord, I followed my heart. And will you perish like that? Or by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, will you meet him at Mount Zion? Will you go to that city where the lovely lamb reigns, clothed in righteousness, and he promises to clothe you in righteousness? Listen to this from Isaiah 61, 10, and I will pray. At Mount Zion, you will meet him, according to the prophet, delighting greatly in the Lord. Your soul will rejoice in God, for he has clothed you with garments of salvation and arrayed you in a robe of his righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. That's how you'll meet God at Mount Zion, because Christ has made you clean. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want Zion to become real for us that we might rejoice more deeply in the gospel of grace. We want us, we want, Lord, desperately to see your holiness more clearly this morning in light of this passage that you might magnify the grace you poured out through Christ on the cross. Lord, help us to see the great sacrifice that he made, that he did go into the thick clouds, the smoke, the lightning, the thunder, the fire that we could be set free from it. And that in that knowledge, Father, give us the faith to draw near to you. Give us the faith to persevere to the end. Give us the desire to encourage one another. And do all this, Father, for your glory. We ask, Lord, that you would magnify yourself this morning as we have had this time of hearing your word preached. I pray that you would take the words from my sinful tongue and that you would apply them with all the holiness and power that your Holy Spirit can, that we might not be a people that ever dismiss your righteousness and your holiness. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.